Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who, just five years into my legal career, found myself questioning, why work so hard to barely be squeezing life in? So that I wouldn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided to redefine success on my terms from the inside out, which is what enabled me to build a profitable legal practice while navigating my way through the challenges of two kids and two bed rests, the 2008 financial crisis, and a battle with breast cancer. What I learned is that you can build a successful legal career without sacrificing your health or personal happiness. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hello there. This is Heather Mulder, host of the Life in Law Podcast. And today we have a guest. We have Jay Harrington, who is a legal marketing consultant, coach, law firm trainer, and published author. He helps his clients define strong marketing positioning, develop effective thought leadership strategies, gain visibility through public relations, and generate new business through the execution of marketing tactics. And he is here today to chat about why thought leadership is such an important component to business development. Welcome, Jay. Heather, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. So before we get into the topic of the day, um, I understand you are, just like me, a recovering lawyer that you once upon a time practiced. So why don't you give us a little bit of history of, you know, how you got started and what it was that you did? Sure. Uh, so I graduated law school in 2001, uh, So kind of coming off the end of the dot-com boom and in as in the midst of the butt, uh, bust. And so I started on uh, September 17th, 2001 at Skadnarp's uh, Chicago office. And I remember that date so specifically because it was obviously six days after 9-11 law. It was that I was supposed to be an M&A lawyer. Um, that was kind of where I focused my time <laughs> and attention as a summer associate there the year before. And then, um, you know, got a call that week, basically, um, you know, everyone... Uh, generally, who is going to be a transactional lawyer, they put into the corporate restructuring group just because, you know, the, the, there was so much uncertainty and, you know, world was going crazy. And um, and actually, it turned out to be a great, uh, great thing. I first I was like, well, I don't know. I didn't I don't know anything about bankruptcy. <laughs> never picked up the bankruptcy code. Don't know what I'm doing. Never wanted to be in a courtroom. Um, but it actually was a really good practice area. So um, I was there for about five years, and then my wife and I moved back to Metro Detroit, which is where I'm originally from, and started working at Foley and Lardner, which had recently opened up a Detroit office. Um, so continued to do corporate restructuring work there. And then in 2009, um, <laughs> right sort of in the midst of the financial crisis, yep. and uh, in Detroit, the automotive crisis, I don't know if you remember, like GM and Chrysler filing for bankruptcy oh, yes. back in those days. Oh, yes. um, so. Yeah. So uh, um, my my good friend and um, who became my law partner in our we opened up a small law practice. Uh, and so we were sort of the boutique corporate restructuring firm in Detroit, you know, getting conflict work from the bigger firms and um, and developing business of our own. So it was kind of a boom time in that practice area. And him and I were like, well, if we're ever going to do this, now's the time. And it ended up being, I guess, a good business decision in the sense that we built a successful firm. But uh, that takes us to about 2013 when I, that business was so good, I completely burned out and uh, <laughs> needed to do something different. And so that's when I got into the type of work I'm doing now. So that's kind of the um, progression of my, my legal career. So there's a couple of things there that I wanted to point out. 
Number one is y'all, there's always ups and downs. <laughs> you you went through several. I went through the same ones, the same several. And um, FYI, that whole, you know, I remember the automotive industry because I did a lot of structured finance mm. up until 2008. And 2008 is when I was promoted a partner in big law. And mm. all of the business that I had that I made partner with was gone <laughs> by the yep. end of that year. And so I had to completely retrench and pivot. And, and it, it, that was a scary time for me. And, um, you know, so I think people need to realize that there are ups and downs. Doesn't matter what your practice is, there will be ups and downs and there are ways to navigate through that. The second thing that I really wanted to focus on for a second is you were successful in big law. You chose to go out on your own and you still burned out. <laughs> um, I think that there's a lot of people out there who think, well, if I could just leave my current firm, I won't have that problem. But that wasn't the case for you. Would you mind talking about that for a couple minutes? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there were probably a couple factors at play there. I mean, I, I would say the time, if I look back at my experience, I probably was less likely to burn out in a big firm environment than than mm -hmm. I was at my own. Um, partly in, in my experience, because I, I didn't have maybe the perspective. It was almost like it was a unique time. And I, you know, this is like one of those, whatever, good problems to have, but there was so much demand, so much opportunity that was prior to really understanding, you know, the need to say no and set boundaries. And, mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, one of the, 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 the big difference to me was, you know, it, when I was at big law firms, yeah, there was a lot of pressure and responsibility, but not to the same extent when you're the boss and you have payroll mm -hmm. to meet and people to manage and all of those things with that go with running your own business. It's a different it's a different pressure and it comes with certain benefits, you know, a little bit more autonomy. But, you know, I would say one thing I would always caution people and, and counsel them is to really understand, you know, who they are in, in just deep down. Um, the difference between me and my partner, my good friend, who's still running the firm that um, we built you know, back in the day is that he, he had, and continues to have a much better capacity to like detach, you know, from work. Mm. And for me, when I was running my own firm and felt like the responsibility for management and everything related to the firm, you know, I had a really hard time letting go. Um, so I would bring that home with me and I would, it was much more of a 24 seven thing for me. It sounds like, you know, I think for many people, oh, if I, if I was running my own thing, I, it wouldn't be as much pressure. It wouldn't be as much stress, but you know, you, you, that may be the case, but if you're someone who has a hard time letting go at a big firm where, you know, it's someone else's business, so to speak, and you're working, you're a bit of a cog mm -hmm. in a wheel, then you're gonna have a really hard time doing that when it's, you know, your name on the on the sign and and it's um, you know, you feel truly like it's your clients whose responsibility uh you bear. Yeah, I totally agreed. And I think a lot of people, certainly when new clients come to me who are kind of on that precipice of I'm burning out or I am burned out or I'm about to, a lot of them go with the assumption that it's about the number of hours that they work and that if they just changed jobs, that it would all be different. And I'm always like, you know, let's be honest here. It's not really a firm problem. It's a you problem. And mm -hmm. yes, there are probably some things going on within your firm that are not helping because there's more to burn out than just number of hours worked and, and, you know, you needing boundaries and all of that, but it starts within you and how you, your mindset 
and then whether you have boundaries and whether you're able to let go of things and, you know, there's so much more. And so I, I just thought you mentioned that and I'm like, ah, we need to talk about that because it, it's such a, an obvious example of why, that, why we say these things, you know, and yeah, yeah. A change of circumstances isn't all you need. <laughs> right, right. Maybe you no, do need a change of circumstances, but. Exactly. And I, I think it's also, I mean, this is, everyone kind of has heard this before, but um, I, you know, I definitely lived through, you know, what is commonly referred to as like the arrival fallacy, meaning, um, you know, when I, when I kept working and, um, you know, the more successful the firm came sort of, I didn't. I didn't really get grounded in like, what are my ambitions? You know, what's enough? Um, and I kept chasing. And as a result of chasing, I took on too much and and realized like the more I got, um, that wasn't actually making me any happier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that sort of, I think it's also sometimes called the hedonic treadmill of just like you're you're on this hamster wheel or treadmill and and you can't get off. And every time you hit some new level of like, oh, we grew more or, oh, we had a better year than last year and we made more money. And then none of that actually brings you the satisfaction or happiness right. that you thought it was going to, then it, that actually becomes very despairing, right? In terms mm-hmm. of, well, crap, if that didn't do it, then what is it? Um, so so that kind of set me on a path probably of more like self-discovery of, of around those kinds of things. And and part of that was, um, you know, taking at the time what was supposed to be a sabbatical from the practice of law, which became, I don't know if it's permanent in the sense that I'll never go back to it, but it's been about a decade now, so it's not looking likely. (laughs) No, probably not. Yeah, no. And I think um, that goes into, I like to call it inside out success. Like you have to understand what it is you really want, why you want it, what your values Mm -hmm. are, what aligns to that. It's kind of the guidepost for all of your decision-making, or at least it, it should be if you want to be happy, fulfilled, et cetera. And I think a lot of us sometimes we never do it at all. Like, you know, or we go into law with those very clearly in our mind, but then it's so easy to get caught up in that path of achievement. And this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And then, oh, they say I've met this level and then, oh, this is the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing without really stepping back and going, wait, is this really what I want? Is this what I ever wanted? Is this what I still want? You know, and so it's really important to check in with yourself regularly. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, recognizing that your 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 wants and desires may change over time. Um, and yes. you know, you'll gain perspective over the course of, of one's life. So it's not like not most people don't have that figured out from day one. I certainly didn't. I mean, my, you know, my vision, if you were to ask me what my vision was like on day one of starting to practice law, it would be like, okay, I'm gonna make partner at Skadden. I'm going to have one of the, this cool apartment and sports car, <laughs> um, you know, in, in downtown Chicago. And like, and that'll, that'll sort of be it, you know, doing this, this interesting, like um, important work. And now um, I live in a small town in Northern Michigan. Um, I don't live within 250 miles of a client. Um, and all I really, you know, like, I like hanging out at the beach and riding my mountain bike. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's much different. And, I, and that makes me happy. And I, you know, yeah. and my fam, spending time with my family, all of those things, very simple. Never would have imagined, if you told me that was going to be my future, like when I was 25 years old, I would have said, you're crazy. And that sounds horrible. Um, <laughs> but it's actually exactly what I came to find that I wanted. Yeah, that's funny. Cause I've kind of had a similar progression. If somebody had told me back when I started, what I would be doing now and what I would get most joy from, especially the fact that I spend probably 60% of my time in a baseball field uh, because both my boys are big into baseball. 
And uh, I was never a big baseball fan, but now I am <laughs> because you yeah. learn to love what your kids love and you enjoy it because they enjoy it so much. But I would have thought people were nuts. Like I thought I wanted to be firm leadership and manage my own firm one day and all of that. And mm -mm, nope, yeah. I was even offered the opportunity at one time to take over for an, an office. And I was like, no, <laughs> yep. it's yeah. changed. I can't Don't believe I'm saying this, but okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's funny. Well, I just, can I tell, cause I yeah. feel like I have to, cause I so relate to that story about the baseball field um, yeah. because I, um, well, I grew up a baseball player. I played baseball in college, um, love baseball. Now I spend 90% of my time on soccer fields. I have three daughters <laughs> who all play travel soccer. I coach, I love soccer. I thought I used to think it was stupid, right? It was like this boring sport and I can't stand watching baseball now. It is, <gasps> it's, but it's true. I mean, I used to just love it, but now you get into the things your kids are into and you start to appreciate them. So I, I thought that you was kind do. of interesting and funny. It is interesting and funny. And I think for all the people, I do remember when we first, uh, our first child started getting into baseball and I kind of rebelled at it at first and was like, oh, he can't be spending this much time. I can't be spending this much time. Mm -hmm. And my husband just looked at me like, Heather, this is his choice. And if this is what he wants, you're going to support it. And it kind of hit me hard at the time. I was still practicing and, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, wait. And it took me a couple months, but finally I got on board and learned to embrace it and realize, you know what? I can learn to love this because my kid loves it so much. And now I really do. I mean, I, yeah. I love going. It's yeah. I make time for it. I plan around it so that I can be at all of the functions. And you know this. Let me just tell you, people, when they play competitive baseball in high school, it is an all-year thing. Yeah. It is constant. <laughs> and you're at the baseball field a lot. But <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So, okay. So now you own your own firm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and you're not practicing law, but you're helping attorneys. So let's get a little bit into this whole idea of thought leadership, uh, because you write about it a lot. You talk about it a lot. I know it's a big part of, of what you help people with. What exactly is thought leadership and why is it important? Yeah. So basically, um, easiest way to describe it is you know, making one's expertise visible. Um, and that's generally through the creation of various forms of content. So if you think about, um, you know, the different forms of marketing you might be able to do, um, this is the type where you're, you know, you're writing about um, different areas related to your subject matter expertise. You might be hosting a podcast. You might be doing public speaking, um, creating video content, whatever the case might be. It's you kind of sharing your ideas uh, with your target market or whatever the world more broadly. And um, as a result of that, you're generating awareness of you, what you do, what you know, maybe some of the problems you might be able to help others solve. And as a result of that, ideally building trust with that audience as well. So, you know, it's the blog post you're writing for your law firm's website, or it's the, you know, opportunity to do a public speaking gig at a conference that your, you know, ideal clients might be attending. And, um, and that's, you know, something that uh, you generally, uh, it's, it's hard for, you know, just you to talk about what you know. Um, this is a way, you know, in terms of, and, and having that really land with a prospective client, mm -hmm. but you're demonstrating what you know through content um, that you're creating. And as a result of that, hopefully generating opportunities for yourself. And a lot of times, 
the content is there to help people solve a quick problem or get gain information or something, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in an ideal world, you know, what, what is one of the mistakes that are, is made when it comes to creating thought leadership content? It's sort of holding back, right? It's, it's oh, you know, I hear clients will say this sometimes, like, oh, we don't want to give away, you know, the secret sauce or like provide all the answers because what we want people to do is to read this and then call us for the answer and, and whatever. And, I, you know, the response to that is obviously, you know, most in most cases, the types of the clients you want are ones that wouldn't be looking to implement the solution for themselves anyway, right? What you're doing right. is giving rise to a possible um, solution for some problem they're facing. And, you know, they jump on Google, they look, they read an article, they go like, oh, okay, good. There is a solution to this problem. Who's the person that wrote this? Okay, that seems like the logical person to call to help solve this problem. And you know, if you hold back, it's it's gonna it's not gonna generate leads. It's going to um, turn people off. It would be uh-huh. you know the equivalent. It would be you know you going to the movie theater, buying a ticket, sitting through the movie, like the you know the climax at the end is coming, and all of a sudden the screen goes black and it says um, to find out what happened. You know, come back in two <laughs> weeks and buy another ticket and. Of course, you know, that would turn you off. And the same thing applies, I think, when it comes to um, you know, our content. So, yeah, I get that a lot, too, from clients that they don't want to give up, give away too much information. And I don't understand it, honestly, especially in the realm of a lawyer, because at the yeah. end of the day, the problems you solve and what you help them with is massively complicated. There's so much more to it than that one thing you're writing about or putting something out there on. So giving that away is not preventing them from still needing a lawyer <laughs> to help them right. with whatever they need, right? And so there's really no reason to hold back. I think people, you know, you and I probably know this better than most of my audience, but there's this whole thing called no like, and trust. And you need them to know who you are, what you do, how you help people, who you help. You need them to actually like you, <laughs> for them to want to pick up the phone and do business with you. And they need to be able to trust you. And if they sense you're holding back, they're not going to trust you. And they're probably not going to like you as much either. So they're much less likely to pick up the phone and give you a call or reach out to you. For sure. No, I think it is a way. I mean, and it is a way for people to get to know, like, and trust you. Um, But that, that gets to, you know, you have to be consistent as well. Like that's another important component about thought leadership, obviously, because, um, you know, a one-off piece might get someone to, you know, tangentially know you, but um, to to like and or trust you, it requires that consistency of effort showing up. And that, so that's where, you know, one of the most important aspects of thought leadership, where I think this is where a lot of people fall down a little bit is thinking in terms of, all right, if I'm going to be creating content for an audience, I need to pick an audience, right? I need to create for someone, <laughs> not everyone. Yes. And and that relates to like having maybe a niche focus to one's practice, or even, even if you don't have a niche focus to your practice, thinking in terms of having a niche focus with respect to your thought leadership marketing, because yes. if you're not if you're not able to write a headline in, in an article that addresses you know, the needs of a particular like job title or industry, well, it's not going to be all that relevant. Um, it's going to have to be by definition generic. So what I mean by that is like, well, you know, the five things um, CFOs of, you know, automotive suppliers need to know about the new blank regulation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not everyone is going to want to read that content. Um, if someone doesn't fit that job title or isn't in that industry, they won't, but that's going to be very attractive to 
that audience you're identifying, even yes. though it's mo- largely the same information, you're contextualizing it. And that's what's going to help you stand out amid the noise. I think one of the things that another kind of misconception people have is that it's difficult difficult to compete for attention in the marketplace of ideas because of all the noise out there. You'll hear, hear, hear people say that, but it's not, you know, the noise isn't necessarily just like bad content. In, in many respects, it's because there's so much great content out there, right? That's right. what you're really competing with. And not only other thought leadership content, but all the other forms of content that are competing for, you know, the time and attention of your, of your target audience, right? Like you need to, you need to make this more interesting than what's on TikTok, you know, because <laughs> if they've got 10 minutes between meetings to consume some, consume something, what you create better be highly relevant to them. And that's why having more of a niche focus, I think is, is pretty critical. Yeah. I see that a lot in my litigation clients. So, mm-hmm. and I have somebody that specifically comes to mind who last year, I was working with her one-on-one for business development coaching, and early on, she refused to pick a niche. I can help anybody. I do general litigation. I, you know, and I'm like, okay, that's great and all, but who, you know, how are you going to know what to talk about? How are you going to know who to target? How do you, you know, she was trying to figure out what professional associations to go to, to network more with. She was trying to figure out what topics she could speak on because she wanted to speak and or write. And she kept pushing back on this. And after about a month or two of going back and forth, she finally came and said, okay, you're right. Cause I have not, I've done nothing <laughs> mm-hmm. because I can't pick what to talk about, who to talk to, where to go. Once she did, she then was able to focus in and start building real relationships with people and start, you know, getting her thought leadership out there, which then of course started to grow an actual book of business. So yeah. I think you know, one thing um, that a lot of people get wrong is it doesn't limit what you can do. Like other people will still come to you. People will still reach out to you, but it does allow you to at least get the attention of people and get started and start building it. hundred percent. Yeah, no, I, absolutely right. I mean, you, you have to, you have to get comfortable with the idea that, yeah, I mean, um, are you potentially missing out on an opportunity because you're, by definition, if you're targeting a niche, you are, you know, not spending as much time um, focused on other areas. But uh, yeah, a couple of things to your point, A, you still have other means of generating business, right? You have people that know you internally, referral sources, they, they'll still send you business. But this is a way to sort of organize and focus your marketing in a way right. that you'll actually gain traction. And, and everything else falls into place. Thought leadership marketing becomes really easy once you have a niche because... Um, yeah, then to your point of w- with your client, like, okay, now you know where to speak because you're, you know, the, the trade association conference, um, it's, I call it the ecosystem of attention of your niche audience. Like where are they spending their time and attention? Well, there's probably, you know, a trade association, there's conferences, there are trade publications, there are podcasts, there are reporters that cover that industry. Everything becomes really easy to, to really define and understand mm-hmm. where you need to immerse yourself um, through your ideas as a result of having more of that focus. And, and yeah, I don't know. I've, I've never seen a lawyer who's defined a potential niche for themselves where that market is too small for their ambition, right? <laughs> it's usually, I mean, my niche uh, when I was building my firm was auto dealers in the Metro Detroit area. And we built a, a very successful, very busy firm, uh, you know, in a very narrow, um, geographically limited niche. And yeah. all I had to do was like go to the Detroit Auto Dealers Association meetings and speak and write and network. 
and I, I had my client base. So right. it's I, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but that strategic decision of having a niche um, allows you to kind of research and define the ecosystem of attention. And then you just have to show up with your ideas in that space. Yeah. And I would say you can always grow it later as you gain traction within your niche and really get what you want and go from there. And that is a perfect example of niching and why it doesn't limit you. I, you know, I only market to lawyers. I only talk to lawyers. This podcast is for lawyers. Everything I put out there, I think of lawyers. 90% of my clients are lawyers, but 10% are not. And in fact, I've had people reach out to me, a couple of them in the last couple of months who have had the attitude of, well, if you can work with lawyers, you could work with me. So like, it's a perfect example of people will still come to you. So do not, you know, but it, 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 it's so counterintuitive to so many people that by narrowing in, you actually broaden your ability to bring in business and uh, bring in more clients. Totally. I mean, I same experience in terms of, um, yeah, you, it's very easy to make a move to adjacent industries or markets. Um, and to your point, clients are smart. I mean, you know, they, they understand yes. that if you can serve one related industry, you can serve them as well. And, <laughs> and say that, you know, we do work across professional services, even though I'm the same way, I only market and speak to lawyers, but that's a good thing. Cause I think people perceive the legal industry as having the most like organized sort of marketing function or business development function among, you know, like the certain other areas of professional services. And so right. they, they, they want legal marketing experts, so to speak, to, uh, to help them versus there is, there aren't as many like accounting industry marketing people. I don't think I, that's just my impression. At least right. I get that from. No, from I haven't seen clients. that either. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure there are some right. people out there, but not as many as the legal, the legal right. world. Exactly. So, okay. So one of the pushbacks that I hear a lot is it's so time consuming. Thought mm -hmm. leadership is too time consuming. I don't have time to write for some big publication or go speak at a big conference. What would you say to that? Yeah. So I would say it, it does take time, um, but the key thing is to, you know, to get to a position where you have enough confidence that your time is going to be well spent, that it will generate a return on your investment of time. And the best way I know how to do that is to create a, a real robust feedback loop with the audience you're targeting such that when you are creating content, you have a high level of confidence that it's really going to resonate with your audience. It's really going to address their challenges, questions, pain points. And that as a result of that, they're going to really pay attention to things that you have to say. And so that's kind of, I know that's kind of sounds vague, but what the concrete way to accomplish that, at least the way that I think about it and I, I execute it is, um, not to focus on creating lots of long form content as a starting point, but rather sharing a very high velocity and volume of um, short form content mm -hmm. such that you can in environments in which you can get an immediate feedback loop going with your audience. So in my case, that's creating lots of content on LinkedIn. So building an audience on LinkedIn of my ideal client audience or my ideal clients, uh, which is those in the legal industry sharing um, at least once a day a post on LinkedIn, um, 
understanding based on the feedback and the reaction those posts are getting and the comments, like what's resonating with my audience. 19 out of 20 posts that I write, um, sort of, you know, taking in those into account, but that whatever that 20th post seems to really strike a chord. And that Mm -hmm. might be the post that I then take and build out into a long form article for the American lawyer, or I might build out into a, um, a talk that I might give um, or a presentation I might give. I understand based on the ideas that I'm sharing, what matters to my audience. And so the, I, I, I take that I take that information and those metrics into account so that when I then write that longer form piece, or even in past instances, I've, that's led me to write books um, about a particular topic. But uh-huh. I'm, never, I'm never starting a, something long form that's going to take me several hours to create where I haven't already auditioned that idea with my audience and gained an understanding as to whether they actually care about it. So how do you suggest lawyers do that? Mm -hmm. But a lot of them don't utilize social media so well. Um, And do you actually recommend that? Who, who do you recommend it for? Who does and does it not work for? Does it work for everybody? And then if they don't utilize social media, is there, is there another way that you recommend they could do that? Yeah, well, I'll start with the the last question first. Um, I think absolutely. I mean, there's other ways to create that audience feedback loop that I'm describing, right? Um, This is where you are, you know, you might be using social media, but for social listening, it's called, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Looking at what your clients are talking about and reacting to on social media, Um, reading what they read. So you're staying up on their industry having conversations. This is the single best way, right? Where you're having conversations for the specific purpose of understanding like what's top of mind um, for for your industry. I mean, clients over and over have told us that, especially corporate clients, the number one thing that they care about in outside counsel is a deep understanding of their business. And if you're not having conversations about their business on a consistent basis, how are you going to gain that understanding? So it's the same principle. It just means that on, you know, social media, I can, you know, I can reach 20, 30, 40,000 people within my ideal client audience and, and gain a bigger sample set as to what, you know, what more broadly is, is impacting people through, through sharing content. So there are other ways to do it. And I recommend doing those things, even if you are also creating content on social media, social media. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so now, uh, for those who might be interested in in creating on social media, I would say um, go for it. And one of the ways to think about it that that is the same way that we've been talking about, which is having a niche focus. Like again, don't don't just try to create generic content for everyone. LinkedIn, for example, is a network of whatever eight hundred and thirty million plus people, but it's really um, it's really a collection of these. Uh, silos of people, right? Who are organized by industry, job title, you know, demographics. Like there are, the legal industry is a great example of that, right? But yep. um, lawyers are connected to lawyers and and there's a big, um, robust ecosystem of content sharing and reactions and all of that. Well, you know, healthcare is the same way, um, you know, SaaS software. I mean, you go down the list. I mean, some are, some are maybe more robust than others, but like there's all kinds of different ecosystems and and niche communities on LinkedIn. And your ability as a lawyer to build your network within one of those areas 
and then start creating content for that audience is available to anyone. The, the key thing is, you know, figuring out how to do that. I mean, there's a lot to like creating content on, on social media. There's a lot to learn about it. <laughs> yes. um, it does. It does take practice, but I will just point out maybe a few examples of people who, um, you know, would be, I think would be totally fine with us talking about them and their, okay. their experience on social media. But like um, someone who I sort of got started creating consistent content around the same time as her. And we've, we've collaborated over the years, but Laura Frederick's a great example of someone who um, kind of went from zero to, you know, rocket ship status on, on LinkedIn um, by posting daily on the platform, her, her daily contract tips. Right. So. And Laura I see those be- all the time. And I was yeah. actually going to, I was like, I bet you mentioned her cause she's doing an amazing job. Yeah, Laura, and and literally, I think it was it was August 2019, mm-hmm. and she was like most people, right? Where she had a LinkedIn profile, like she'd occasionally post something like, "Hey, you know, I don't, I can't, I don't know what Laura was posting before then, but it was probably, hey, I wrote this article like on my blog, like here's a link to it, or oh, I won this award, or you know, whatever, um, stuff like that, maybe." Very periodically, the typical um, but, lawyer posts. <laughs> yeah, and then and then she uh, right, and then she decided at I think it was on August first, twenty nineteen. She decided she was going to do a thirty day challenge, which she's going to post every day. And she kind of you know tried a few different things, but and ultimately she landed on this daily contract tip of the day, where she breaks down different aspects of commercial contracts and. Fast forward, um, whatever it is, two and a half. Yeah, was it three years later? I don't know. I'm losing track of time. Three years later. Like she's got probably 30,000 plus followers. I know she's, she's now got a training platform business. Her firm is very busy. She's talked about on my podcast, like how much inbound, you know, legal demand she's generated as a result of LinkedIn content. That's, that's a great example. Um, but there's so many others, Philip Russell, um, who's a partner at Ogletree Deacons, mm-hmm. uh, who's a friend, friend of mine. He um he got started probably 18 months ago creating lots of content and he went from maybe a thousand followers to seven or eight thousand now. And and again, it's not so much the number of followers you have, it's the ability to generate that following within your niche audience. So in Philip's case, he writes all about OSHA issues, right? He's an employment and OSHA lawyer. And so all of his clients, um, they're paying attention or all the people in his network are paying attention are generally in that space, right? They're safety experts at at companies or in-house counsel. And they're looking to him for like the latest updates on, you know, the COVID-19 workplace rules and all of these types of things. So so it's the, that consistency of effort, but it's having the niche focus like they have and, and others that allows them to build the following that then can create the feedback loop that I'm talking about that builds the trust that that keeps them top of mind and visible to that audience. Um, and that and that's so key. There's not there's not that many ways to remain highly visible to one's audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and visibility and, and remaining top of mind is so important. I mean, I think I, and as most private practice lawyers know, like they're not the only game in town, right? I mean, prospective right. clients have other service providers they can turn to. Um, so it oftentimes comes down to who is there at the moment at which demand arises. And that's why I think content creation and thought leadership is so important. It's not about chasing demand that exists right now. If you're doing that, you're too late. Right. Mm-hmm. That those that 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 ship has already sailed. But it's about building trust and and creating awareness like seven months before that demand arises, so that when it does, you know, the company or individual thinks of no one else but you to call to help solve their problem. Yeah, I want to make note of that because 
I think a lot of times lawyers start really gung-ho on doing something like this, really all their business development efforts, but especially when it comes to content marketing and thought leadership. They go all in for maybe a couple of months, and they spend a lot of time on it for that couple of months, but then they don't see anything immediately, and they give up. And that's way too soon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because again, they need to trust you, and that takes time. But also, they need to need you and have the ability to hire you in that moment. And oftentimes, what people don't realize is they see it, they remember it. And as long as they keep occasionally seeing stuff from you, it stays in their mental, you know, mix. They remember you. So then when that thing does come, which might be three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months, even sometimes later, they are like, oh yeah, I'm going to pick up the phone and call them or reach out. And you need that. You need that consistency Mm -hmm. over time to be top of mind so that they'll reach out to you. And FYI, and I know, you know, we get very caught up in engagement and, you know, how many people like, how many people comment. Something I will note, at least I have noticed this amongst my audience, and I don't know if yours is the case. You have done this longer than I have. So you have more engagement, like obvious engagement on your post than I do yet. However, people reach out to me all the time saying they've read it saying things have resonated off of LinkedIn, off of, you know, and I had no clue. And that they've been following me for a while because they never like, they never comment, they never, the vast majority of people I know, they're lurkers. Mm -hmm. And you have no clue how many people it's really resonating with sometimes. So don't assume, yes, some are going to be more obvious than others because it's going to hit a nerve and you should definitely pay attention to that. But don't assume that your efforts are for nothing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, it's certainly the case with me too. I mean, where a significant number of opportunities that are being generated via LinkedIn are coming via people who I've never, you know, I guess they're, you know, they're probably connected to me or follow me, but I don't, I never see them in my comment, you know, the comments, my posts or, or, you know, the reactions to it. Um, And I mean, that makes sense too, right? Where uh, if you think about it, if you're, you know, if you say, let's say you're in-house counsel, you, you know, you're reading the posts of some, you know, outside lawyer, you're probably not going to be liking that person's post. Cause what are you afraid of? You're afraid of like, Oh, then they're going to, they're going to see that I'm liking the post and they're going to pitch me. Um, And, and the same thing (laughs) with, you know, our clients, right. Other lawyers who are reading our stuff, like they probably feel the same way. So I think that's natural, but your point is well taken. It it, it certainly is the case that a, it it takes, yeah, it takes time. I mean, the one thing about content uh, it it is playing the long game. It's not, you know, if you want to generate, you know, immediate, visibility and you know you can go you can always go buy an ad right you can mm-hmm. buy attention or you can earn it and earning it's the lo- it takes a longer time but it i think the payoff is much bigger over time because we've talked about this trust factor that that is right. enabled through that but there is certainly a compounding effect to it one of the things that's underappreciated i think um, especially among the skeptics who will say like oh social media is frivolous like i don't, don't do that kind of thing i you know i'm looking for public speaking engagements or we do pr or mm-hmm. um or you know i'm looking to get published and that kind of thing what they don't take into account is the fact that all of the gatekeepers of those opportunities so the you know the reporters the event organizers the podcast hosts the yeah. um you know, all of these people who could 
give you an opportunity on their platform who you're pitching would might be pitching you if you are highly visible and seen as a thought leader on on like LinkedIn. Like that's yes. certainly been my experience. Like, I, you know, as, as my audience is built, the opportunities off of LinkedIn have grown with it, right? You know, reporters call out of the blue just because they probably are seeing, you know, they're seeing content and engagement and they see me, you know, an obnoxious amount of posts that I put up. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, they're like, you know, that's how it works. Right. And, uh, and that can work for anyone in their own sort of slice of the, of the media world as well. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I've gotten a couple of speaking engagements this year, thanks to being on LinkedIn consistently. I think that, again, it's top of mind. These people are on LinkedIn, and if they see you and they like what you're putting out there, eventually they're going to start reaching out. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want more, especially if you want more, because a lot of my clients think speaking is the end-all be-all, and I do think speaking, if done right, can be incredibly helpful as a form of thought leadership. And it can be your primary thought leadership. However, it can be hard to get the top speaking engagements at big conferences. There's a lot of people who are trying to get those. And so one of the ways to get in is to be a thought leader elsewhere first and then kind of build into that. At least that's what I've seen a lot of people do more successfully. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the thing, the way I see it is, um, you know, I've, as I've, as I've grown my own platform, um, it, it, it gives me the confidence to start saying no to so many different things. Like basically yes. if I'm, if I've got to get on an airplane, it, it, it's going to involve like, you know, it's not going to be a free speaking gig. Let's just say oh, that, no. you know what I mean? <laughs> no. um, and I think that should be everyone's general rule of thumb, but you know, cause it's basically like, I, I just, pulled up because I wanted to see as a point of comparison. But yeah, I mean, I've done the whole thing where you, know, you go do a public speaking gig and you're you're doing a breakout session. There's maybe a hundred people in the room. And, or, you know, I, if with my LinkedIn post that I shared this morning, um, it's been viewed by more than 18,000 people so far um, in, in the last six hours. So, you know, you, you can't, you can't buy that type of um, visibility, right? So no. it, it's not just when I talk about compounding, it's not just like what happens with respect to each post or any individual like opportunity that's generated as a result of something you wrote. It's the ability to reach a very large audience that you could never pay for or, or build in any other environment. Now, right. all that being said is, you know, the natural sort of um, pushback on that is, well, you don't own that audience, which is true, right? You're building on top of a platform, which is why I've been making a big effort to grow my email list at the same time. And I think other people should do that as well. But, but it's, you know, it's, it's like, um, what game are you going to play? Like, if you, if you think about marketing as like mm-hmm. an opportunity to play some game, like, why would you not play the one that's got the highest return on, on effort right now, which is social media? It's just right. hard to beat it. So do you have, before I let you go, any tips mm-hmm. for, I mean, it is time, more time consuming, right? Mm-hmm. But yet necessary to do so, to some extent. Do you have any tips for how to save time and yeah. yet still get out there enough? So um, the way the systems kind of that I, I think through are, okay, um, I have, you know, I'll just use my own example and people can kind of extrapolate to their own area of expertise as a result of it. But like the way I think about it is, is as follows. 
I serve a particular industry, um, legal industry. So I'm trying to grow my network in that area. And what I'm, how I'm trying to grow that network is by creating content that leads people to follow me. So I need to create content that's interesting to people. And, mm-hmm. and I, I want it to relate to the types of services I provide. So, you know, I, as a result, sort of strategically and intentionally create content around maybe four or five kind of core topics, you know, call yep. these my content pillars. Um, and, and underneath each of those, so it would be like, you know, things like, um, you know, I guess business development being a broad one or time management, like you pick some areas that you're going to write about and you want to become known, known, known for, or associated with your brand. And then you start to pay attention through the conversations you have with clients, through what you're reading, through what's being discussed on social media to create ideas for individual pieces of content, an article you might write or a LinkedIn post you might create. And then I capture those ideas all week. So all week, I'm mostly spending time capturing ideas for content. Not a lot of it. This is all sort of happening subconsciously now, right? Uh Because I've got four or five topics that I focus on for one industry, um, you know, becomes pretty immediate. We're like, oh, that that anecdote's interesting. I bet I can build on that in a LinkedIn post. Or, oh, I'll, that statistic um, is something maybe I will share with my audience and and write a post around that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm dropping those into, you know, the notes app on my phone and on my desktop. So I'm organizing that. But that's, that's not taking that much time. Like I said, I'm on a coaching call. A client asks a question. I think, well, that, yes. that's a question I've heard before. That's a great signal that, that I should write about that on LinkedIn. That goes into my notes app. Then I post content every business day and sometimes every day on LinkedIn, but I don't write content every day. And this is mm. the big time saver for me, which is all week I'm gathering ideas. And then I set aside a dedicated block of time. Um, in my case, like 90 minutes early on a Saturday morning before my kids get up. And then I just batch write as much content as possible. I go back to my notes. I see what still resonates with me. And then I just bang it out. And 90 minutes is great because that gives you enough time to sort of get into a flow state. And once you have that, you know, everyone's sort of probably had that experience when writing before where just sort of starts to feel effortless, whatever, that you can write a tremendous amount of content in a short period of time. Yep. Juxtapose that with trying to sort of start cold every morning and write something that would be very difficult, very (laughs) difficult to do over time. You know, if by writing hundreds and hundreds, if not at some point, thousands of posts, you've got this entire body of work. And then you can just start repurposing a ton of that content. Yes, This is where the, the feedback loop comes in, where you go back and you look. Um, and I use a, I use a tool called shield app. Um, and that allows you to basically, um, in a snapshot, see all of your posts, you know, sort of on a month by month basis, see all the engagement with those posts. And then you can tag particular posts and I, I'll tag them repurpose. Um, and then I can go back to that and I can start resharing that content. Maybe I don't reshare it word for word, but I study it and I say like, there's something about this format um, this first line that grabbed people's attention this concept, whatever, and I can rewrite. So then it just becomes a reinforcing mechanism. The rule of Uh thumb I use is don't try to come up with like a hundred new and novel ideas to write about. Just come up with one idea, core idea that matters to your audience and find like a hundred or 200 different ways to kind of say it in an interesting way. Talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, if you can do that, but capturing ideas and batch writing are the two biggest time savers I know to get lots of creative content done. And, you know, my, my volume is probably different than 
what many of the people who will be listening would care to create. You know, I think those same principles apply. Like maybe it's a 40 minute batch writing session. You can get two or three posts done and, and then you're done for the week, schedule them and have them go out. And, you know, you know, you don't have to spend a bunch of time on social media. And, and I would just comment on a couple of things you mentioned through this whole thing. <clears throat> Number one, just pay attention to what people come to you for issues that come up over and over again, questions that get asked by your clients, by when you're at networking events and have a way to capture it because you are going to find so many ideas through that, that you don't even realize are there. That's like really key. And then I would, I would definitely second the batching. I batch everything um, from my posts that are online to podcasting. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I batch, I'll record something and then I'll, it'll just like sit there until I'm ready to batch, do, do it in like a day. Because I found that you do get into a better state of flow when you just do all the same kind of activity at once. <clears throat> and so for me, my batching is once a month. I have a day a month where I do podcasting and I have a day a month where I do writing <laughs> mm-hmm. of all of my social posts and newsletters that go out. And that may sound like a lot, but when you consider how much content I have to I put out there, it's really not that much time No, when you think about it. And we're not saying, like, you're, you lawyers are not going to have the same amount of content that we have <laughs> with online businesses, right? So you don't have to spend that much time. But think about what the best time is for you on a maybe weekly or every other week basis where you could just sit down and do this. And I think you're going to find that it might be a little clunky at first, but you get into a habit and you get better as you go and your writing becomes so much easier and better as you go. And you're just going to find that it it becomes this easy habit that you can stay up with no matter what. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why I think, you know, generally I, I, I talk to clients about to pick something from a marketing standpoint that you can kind of double down on because mm-hmm. marketing is like the concept of marketing is like the concept of sports, right? Like, because you're, because you're good at swimming doesn't mean you're going to be good at basketball. And the same thing applies with marketing. Like just because, yep. because you're like good at writing online content for social platforms doesn't mean you're going to be engaging in front of a live audience in a public speaking thing. And yeah, there's something to be said for like, you know, putting yourself in a state of discomfort and working on your weaknesses. <laughs> but with the limited amount of time that most lawyers have to devote to things like marketing, I'm I'm all about like doubling down on your strengths. And and you do, to your point, Heather, you do build a skill set um in 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 this work. And the more you build that skill set, the more attention you garner and the more trust you build and the more that effort will compound in your favor. Thank you so much for coming here today. And just so everybody knows, I'm going to put links of where to find Jay. And also, I'm going to include links of the two examples that you gave on those attorneys, their LinkedIn profiles, so that you can find them. I have to say, I don't know Laura, um, but I have actually saved some of her posts. I keep like favorite posts of attorneys mm-hmm. like her in a spreadsheet for my clients to give examples of here's what I'm talking about. Nice. Yeah. So I'm going to have to check the other one out too, to see if I can steal some of those just so people can see like, this is what we're talking about. Um, but I will have, a, I will have links to everything. And why don't you just let us know where can people find you? Yeah. So, I mean, I would just say 
uh, LinkedIn. I mean, that's, I feel like that's the hub, right. For everything you can find <laughs> everything I'm doing there, but I have, I have an email newsletter. Um, I have a podcast, like I've written a you know, few books, um, but you can find everything, uh, as a starting point, uh, like on my on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it was great to do it. Thanks for having me on Heather. Are you an attorney in private practice who is looking at your results and a bit discouraged given the amount of time that you've spent writing and or speaking and or networking? Do you sometimes wonder what exactly am I missing as you analyze the much higher origination numbers of a partner down the hall who isn't even that good of a technical lawyer? Do you have work, but you're a bit worried about the impact that the looming recession is going to have on your business and know you need to step up your game? Do you have business and would you like to even grow it more, but you feel stymied by the fact that you do not have enough support to help you with your growing business? If any of that speaks to you, then I invite you to check out my mastermind, Elevate. We focus on a couple of key things. Putting together a simple strategy so you don't get overwhelmed, that leverage your strengths in a way that enables you to be more consistent with your efforts because, you know, it's more fun and it's simple. Getting the support you need for creative brainstorming and expert advice that helps you continue on and also helps you become a much better leader so that you can grow the team you need and want to support your practice, and putting into place systems, systems that help to free up time and promote action taking so that you don't just grow your business, but you grow it the right way. You save yourself time and you have systems in place that enable others, your team, to go at it as well so that it's not all on you. I will include a link to check out the details and see if this is really for you in the show notes. It is an application-only process. You do have to interview, and we both need to ensure that we feel like this is really, truly a good fit for you. Applications are only open for another, I think, week and a half, so act quickly if interested. All right, that is it for this week. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Life and Law Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and aren't yet a follower or subscriber, be sure to hit the follow and or subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. For show notes and free resources to help you succeed in both life and law, including the Life and Law Roadmap, visit lifeandlawpodcast.com.